This is the Life of Jesus podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. For a full year, we have been looking at the life teachings and works of Jesus from the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Last week, we took a look at some of the ministry of Jesus to the Gentiles in the Decapolis. And now we move back to some Jewish territory, but we're not really looking at action he does there as much as preparation. I think he's preparing his disciples for his own coming death and resurrection. We can pick up the story in Matthew chapter 16. We'll spend the time in Matthew 16 and 17 today. Matthew 16 and down in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. A few weeks ago, we, we went through Holy Week, and we, we on Good Friday, remembered the crucifixion of Jesus, and then on Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus. But we have the vantage point, Ben, of being on this side of those events, and the disciples, not so much. So Jesus is saying this, but it's almost like they couldn't comprehend it or, or chose to push it away. In fact, in verse 22, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter says, I'm, I'm going to defend you at all costs. I'm not going to let you be killed by those lousy people that are running the religious rules of this community, of this, of this nation. I'm not going to let it be happen. And I, I, they knew Jesus to be a truth teller. And when Jesus had said things, they panned out to be true. So why is it here when he's saying, this is going to happen to me? We have the, again, we have the vantage point of knowing it happened. They just wouldn't accept it. What do you think? I think their understanding of the Messiah at this point is still that, and, and we have this just earlier uh, confession, you know, a hot second earlier uh, from Peter where he confesses Christ as the Messiah. Uh, earlier in uh, chapter 16, he, Peter said, you're, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. But they all, they both, the disciples at this point, the 12, um, have this picture that the Messiah ultimately is going to rule on a throne in Jerusalem. So they're, they're kind of still waiting, I think, for Jesus to kind of take up arms against the Romans and for uh, the Jewish people to recapture the land. And so the idea of Jesus dying um, is repugnant to Peter. He just can't wrap his mind around it. None of them can. And so we have Peter, which I mean, even just imaging the scene in my mind of Peter taking Jesus aside, pulling him aside so that he can correct him. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's both grievous and, and humorous all in the same, in the same, in the same thought, uh, as Peter like rebukes him. 
to say, no, no, Jesus, uh, you're wrong. Uh, what you just told us is wrong. That that can't happen to you. Don't you get it? You're the Messiah. That's not, the Messiah is not going to be killed. Yeah, a dead king is not going to have a very good kingdom. Right, right. And so he just can't wrap his mind around how he's going, even though he said raised to life, and, and I don't right. know if Peter was thinking, does that mean spiritual life? Does that mean heaven? Is that what you're talking about? Or physical life? I don't know if he didn't get it. But the response of Jesus is phenomenal in verse 23. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Now, you had just referenced the confession a few verses earlier when Peter had proclaimed Jesus, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in response to that, Jesus said, we're up in in Matthew 16, verse 17. In response to that, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, which is Peter's given name, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. I tell you that you are Peter, and the word means rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And here we are, just like a few verses later, when he calls the guy who's the rock and it's going to be a church that's built on you like a foundation and Hades will not overcome it, he now says, you're not the rock anymore. You're the stumbling block. And you're not going to prevent the work of Hades. I'm calling you Satan. Uh, that's a rough turnaround for Peter. <laughs> what do you think's going on in this exchange that where Jesus uses two kind of rock metaphors, a stumbling block in this case, and he also uses spiritual ones about Hades before and now calling him Satan himself. Um, what's, what's up here with Jesus? Why is he using such harsh terms? Well, Peter rebuked him, and, and ultimately uh, Jesus is rebuking Peter um, for serving as you know the, the rock who has now become uh, the stumbling block, the one who would... Uh, keep him from living into his mission, living into uh, his redemptive work, that ultimately Peter, in rebuking uh, Jesus and telling Jesus that you cannot die, um, ultimately Peter is acting on behalf, uh, in essence, acting on behalf of, of Satan. It's a hard word. Peter's going to be the, the guy. Right. Here pretty soon. He's going to, when Jesus does die and be resurrected and ascend into heaven, he hands the hands it over to Peter as the leader to get the church started. And here he's he's calling the the number two man, his number one man, I guess, Satan. And you're at stumbling block. It's a real reminder to me at least, Ben, that that just because of my position mm-hmm. as a pastor or my standing as as a person who's a follower of of God that I can't take that for granted and come at the statements of Christ or the statements of the Bible and say well I know better. Yeah. I've got it figured out better than you do. Jesus goes on then to talk about the cost of being a follower where Matthew 16 Verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross 
and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever wants, whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man, Jesus referring to himself, is going to come in his Father's glory and with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. There's a lot happening in here in in this passage when Jesus is talking to them. And initially there in verse 24, whoever wants to be my disciple, pick me, pick me, must, number one, deny yourself. Number two, take up your cross. And then and only then, by the way, take up your cross is not like buy a piece of jewelry. Yeah. It's like the, the, the image there is to haul around on your back the means of Roman execution. Yeah. Yeah, and ultimately imaging your own your own death for the sake of Christ. And that that's where I mean that whole phrase gets so trivialized a lot of times when people will make the comment, Well, that's just the cross I have to bear, you know, and how oftentimes that phrase gets trivialized. Like I'm like, don't and a lot of Christians use that. I'm like, don't even know what you're saying when you're saying this. What is he saying here? Right. Well, he's telling us, I mean, as is a is a self proclaimed follower of Christ. I am in all things to yield myself to him, um, to yield myself to him, to die to self. When my false truth runs up against his truth, to yield to his truth, uh, when the desires of my heart run up against the, the desires of Christ's heart, my, the desires of my heart must die for the sake of, of, his, uh, for, of his desire, um, knowing that all the whole of Christ is born of perfect love, perfect truth. Those things are interwoven uh, with each other. And so I should want to submit the entirety of my life to the beauty of Christ who has redeemed me. At the end of the day, it's just, here's my life. Take it and do with it what you will for the sake of your glory. I'm here to make much of Jesus, not much of myself. I'm here for the name of Christ, not to make much of my own name, not to build a legacy for myself, but to simply faithfully live for for Jesus. Well, here in, in 2022 and in, in the United States, in particular, we're in the Indianapolis area in Fishers, Indiana. What what do you what do you think is the biggest competitor to doing what you just described? This this yielding of your life completely to Christ. I mean, I, I don't sense that it's people wanting to put us to death for saying we're Christians. I mean, it's not, I don't not sense that. It's not true because that's not the culture that we live in. So what's the biggest competitor to us truly denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following Jesus? I don't know. I mean, there's, there's so much there. I don't know. Uh, you know, sometimes I think it's a, just a, a heart of apathy where we, we don't really truly consider uh, the life that Christ has called us into, um, we don't consider what it is and, and what the, the life Christ has called it to go and make disciples. So, you know, we don't, we don't share Christ with others. We don't seek to, to nurture the heart of another toward Christ. Um, 
we're just, I mean, culturally in a lot of ways, we're just distracted by all the things around us, the things that we prioritize over Jesus, uh, even within the, the the church community, within many uh, believers, we we prior we prioritize. And again, you know, it's it's one of those things where there's nothing wrong with youth sports, but for many uh, for many Christian families, youth sports have become the dominant god of their life that can controls and constrains everything that they do. It can become academics again. Academics a good thing. But where we can turn academics as uh, into the the sole thing um, that that our if our kids need this if they're going to be successful if they're going to you know be productive citizens they they've got to make good grades so they can go to a good college and you know and so all of these things which are again good things oftentimes we can allow them to take priority uh, within a familial setting a, a priority uh, in our relationship you know with our children. Um, it can be material. I mean, the, our, our lust and desire for, uh, the, the material things of, of this world. Um, again, another distraction. I mean, there's, there's so much, uh, and in any given culture, any given context, the schemes of the devil, you know, the devil doesn't come to us with, with horns and a pitchfork, but comes to us manipulating our hearts that we begin to chase after, uh, the desires of our of our hearts and prioritize those things over the desires of Christ's heart. I don't know. What what do you think? Well, yeah, you know, we have I think terms for it. Almost the things you're describing: uh, travel sports and travel dance and binge watch. And, you know, affluenza. Uh, living in a cult, culture with aff, affluence so much that it's almost like a a sickness. And I do believe that these things um, are distractions. They're shiny objects in our culture. So I've, I've been a pastor for a long time and I've never had someone threaten my life for being a pastor, for, for being a Christian that at least in this world. Now, when I've traveled some other places in the world, um, that didn't happen to me directly, but I've, I've been to a few places and preached where there were armed guards at the entrance to, to keep people out. So we just don't have that. I, we don't have anybody with automatic weapons out at the front of the driveway to keep to keep the wrong kind of people out here in our culture. So I, I think that for us, it's that distraction that you're, you're describing, uh, affluenza, maybe. And I think also, like in that, um, I think sometimes you know churches themselves can become a byproduct of of the culture around them. And so even I think one of the things we can get caught up within the, the, the church setting is that, you know, we have a, a vision of success that is dominated by American culture. And so, you know, we, we play the numbers game. And again, I mean, you want a growing, thriving church. You want to see more people come to know Jesus. Uh, and so you want that. Um, but a lot of times there there can be that temptation. I think that that sometimes we fall into, or, or that uh, churches and church leaders can fall into, where you know we rather than a message being faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ or, or the Word of God, um, there's a, there's that temptation to want to placate the hearts uh, within the the church community. Uh, is a means to, in, in our own minds, sometimes I think for some people wrestling with 
if I placate the mind, if I placate the heart, I'll draw more people into the pew. Um, and so I think that, you know, I mean, it's a whole bunch of things that distract and detract. And again, I think that the schemes of, of the devil, the allure of success in itself can become a temptation away from faithfulness. I, I totally agree. That's a, a good thing for all of us to, to heed there. So the turn, let's turn to Matthew 17. It's just the next verse, really, in, in the new chapter of Matthew 17. And it says, after six days, I look at that phrase and I think, I wonder what happened during those six days. <laughs> like nothing's described. The ministry, did they like sleep for a while or just take it easy? Or was there more ministry or teaching or healing that we don't know about? I, I think about that all the time when I look at the Bible and look in particular here at the life of Jesus that we're studying this year and wonder what all took place that we just don't even have a record of. After six days, Jesus took with him his, his three, the three amigos or the three stooges or whatever the three were, but they were the people who were going to lead the things, Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So it was just the four of them, Jesus, Peter, James, and John. There Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now that's got to be quite a scene because Moses had been gone for, gosh, you know, 1,500, 2,000 years by now, um, a long time. Elijah was around, I don't know, 700 years earlier or something like that. So here are the, and they, apparently were able to recognize who they were or Jesus described it later. I'm not sure to them. I'm not sure, but this is phenomenal. So what's, what's happening here as Moses and Elijah comes with Jesus? Yeah, we, well, one of the things that we get, uh, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, Moses, the prophets, Elijah. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, by their presence, there's a, a testimony to that. Um, and then we see uh, Jesus uh, in his divine glory uh, here on top of the mountain. Um, one of my, I mean, there's a lot that we see here. One of my favorite things, again, is just Peter, his response to it. And I always wonder what the tone here is in Peter's voice, you know, where it's just like he can't help himself, you know. And I, I know that I got a lot of Peter qualities, so sometimes I can't keep my mouth shut. But it's like Peter always has to have a word for something, you know. Uh, he rebuked Jesus earlier and now it's like, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. I just, I love it. Yeah. These, these guys are appearing that have been gone for hundreds and hundreds of years and I'm going to build you a little, uh, shade place or something like that. It's kind of a, kind of a Peter type move, isn't it? And it says, while Peter was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. So God speaks from heaven about Jesus. The last time he did this was at Jesus' baptism. And here we are, probably near the end of Jesus' ministry and life, at his transfiguration. God is declaring 
his love for his son Jesus and that he is pleased with Jesus and then reminds all of us, listen to him. I've got a friend who looks at this verse and, and says, we, we need to know the gospels better than any other part of the body. I mean, any other part of the Bible. If it says, listen to him, pay attention to him, we really need to know what Jesus said. We, we need to know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John better than anything else. I, I don't think that would mean to not know the rest of the Bible because that really helps us to understand what happens in the Gospels. But Jesus is claimed here by God to be his son, to be loved by the Father, to have pleased the Father, and to be one that we should listen to and pay attention to. And and I've wondered at times if we should really spend like every year with a life of Jesus study, not like a, not a church program like we're doing here, but that every follower of Jesus, as they're doing other things, reading the Old Testament, the rest of the New Testament, to review the life of Jesus, to go back over again and again, to listen to him, what he had to say, what he did, how he lived, because he's really our ultimate role model in our lives, right? Yeah. When the disciples heard this, I'm in verse six, they fell face down to the ground, terrified, but Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Moses and Elijah were gone. And here he comes to this other part again about preparing them for his death. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. So he had just told them that he was going to be crucified and rise from the dead. And he said, hold on to this. You'll want to write it down later. But for now, hold on to it. So I, I, I don't know if they told the other nine disciples or, or not, but he said, I'm, I'm going to be raised from the dead and you need to hold on to that. And let's, let's just jump down to verse 22, because once again, in verse 22, he's laying it out clearly for them. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man, referring to himself again, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. He's speaking in the third person of himself. They will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised to life. So this is now the second time he talks about his death and resurrection. It's maybe the third time, if you include there the transfiguration, like back to back to back moments when he said, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised to life. And in, over in Matthew 7, Matthew chapter 7, it, it says, and the disciples were filled with grief. I'm sorry, Matthew 17 is where we are, 17, 22. The disciples were filled with grief. In Mark, it says, but they didn't understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him. In Luke, it says, they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. So even though he's told them like time and time and time, but again, that he's going to be, he's going to be crucified, he's going to be killed and then raised to life. They had, their response was grief and denial and confusion and fear 
And all of those things, not our response to Easter is raising from the dead. We have a joyous response to that, but their response, like if he's going to be raised to life, that means he's going to be dead. And they have, their emotions are all over the place. What, what do you imagine is happening in the lives of these disciples? They've been with him now two or three years. Like what is happening inside of them as he's explaining this? And they're, they're emotional train wrecks right now. Yeah. All they can hear is that they're, that he's going to be killed. They can't get past to the, the, the resurrection piece. And, uh, and part of it is, I mean, sometimes in the, the 21st century, we, we look back on the first century and we think that, oh, well, you know, everybody was just, they, everybody expected the supernatural. That's how they explained everything. And I'm like, no, they didn't. Dead people don't rise from the dead. And so when they cannot get past, seemingly cannot get past Jesus's words, uh, that they, that he's going to die, that they will kill him. Um, we also see them coming to terms in some ways and Jesus's patience in many ways with them, that he continues to repeat the same message to them over and over and over again, that he will be killed and on the third day be raised from the dead. So we see Jesus's patience with them, even in John four, uh, John 14, uh, comes on the heels of him telling them, I think in John 13, that he was going to die and be raised again. And then him, uh, going into greater detail in John 14, uh, about that is a means to com- compassionately instruct them in the presence of their grief and the presence of them wrestling uh, with this. But the more they hear it, the more they're starting to come to terms with the reality that that Jesus is going to die. It's got to be a, a grievous thing for them. I, I know that in my own personal life, when I've uh, faced death, faced death primarily through loved ones, that there's great grief that comes from that. And to have somebody that you've invested your life in, this, these guys gave up their careers mm-hmm. and walked away from their families for a season, all kinds of things. And for the leader to say, I'm going to be, I'm going to be put to death. has got to be a very hard, hard thing for them to hear. What's your final word on this for today? Uh, my final word, I guess, just going back to Matthew 16, uh, for us and for those listening that if we claim Christ as savior, um, our call in responding to his redeeming love, um, our call is to be a reflection of that. And the only means by which we're going to grow more fully into the likeness of Christ is to deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow after him. I love that. Folks, if you want to jump in deeper, go to our church's website, fishersumc.org, or our church app, and click on the Life of Jesus link. That will take you to more elements in this year-long study of the life of Jesus. That includes things like daily gospel readings, devotions, poems, weekly sermons, group study, and other episodes of this podcast. Until next week, may God bless you. 